speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. Yes, it's Superman. Strange visitor from another planet who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Superman, who can change the course of mighty rivers, bend steel in his bare hands, and who, disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, fights a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 45 of the Man of Screen podcast. I am your host, Mike Zumo, and in this episode, we're going to look at episodes 7 and 8 of season 3 of The Adventures of Superman. Olsen's Millions and Clark Kent Outlaw. I will be on my own for this week's episode, but and before we get to the business of this week's episode, I have some feedback that I'd like to address from friend of the show, Dave McElvenny. Dave is writing in on Man of Screen podcast episode 41, in which I finish off my coverage of the second season and the black and white episodes as a whole, covering The Whistling Bird, Around the World of Superman, and the special for the government, Stamp Day for Superman. So, Dave writes, Greetings, Mike. Thanks for the shout-out at the beginning of the episode. It was very gracious of you. And by the shout-out, I'm guessing uh, that was the episode in which I commented on the gift that Dave had sent me, the poster of the Legion of Super Pets playing poker. Unfortunately, Dave, at the moment, it is still wrapped up in the tube that uh, you sent it in. I am planning a move in the next several months, and I think I'm going to wait to take it out until I'm settled in at my new place. But when I get it up there in my new place, it will go in a place of honor, and I will send pictures as soon as that's done, probably within a few months. So anyway, Dave continues. I think perhaps you were a little too hard on Whistling Bird. Granted, it might have fit better in the color seasons, both for its tone and so that we might actually see the bright plumage of Skylar. But as you noted, Sterling Holloway was quite fun, and I always find him worth the price of admission just on his own. And Jack Larson had a couple of fine moments, I think. This episode wasn't the Evil 3 or Panic in the Sky, but it wasn't bad, really. As for Around the World with Superman, I always have a soft spot for this one. And don't discount your mom's opinion. Moms can be very discerning. For those of you who remember episode 41, I commented that Around the World with Superman is my mother's favorite episode. So, Dave continues. Who can resist Superman helping a blind girl? And George Reeves clearly did have a real simpatico with kids that comes across on the screen. It must have been terrific for kids who worked with him or met him at personal appearances. You could tell that he genuinely liked and respected kids. I was glad that, in this episode, they didn't have Superman perform the operation himself, but simply assisted the surgeon. Even Superman should know his limitations. I find it interesting that Superman told Anne that he could only help her if she believed in him, almost as if he were a religious or mythical figure, which I guess he kind of is. I'm going to put Dave on pause there for a minute. Yes, Superman is a mythical figure in the context of our world. And I really haven't thought too deeply about her comment and comment that the only people who believe in him are those that can see him. For those of you who remember the Man of Screen Extra I did a few weeks ago, the tagline for that one was, Seeing is Believing, which is kind of a take on the old, uh, you'll believe a man can fly from the Superman the movie in 1978. I interpreted it as... And having to believe in him for him to help her was more about developing trust with the girl than anything else. I mean, if she doesn't believe he is who he says he is, how can she trust him? That makes sense? I think it makes a little sense. So anyway, Dave continues. I'm looking forward to hearing your coverage on the color episodes. Even if the stories may not always be the very best in those seasons, there is certainly a visual thrill in seeing Superman in color. Live long and prosper, Dave McElvenny. 
Yes, Dave is absolutely right. It is a thrill seeing Superman in color. I mentioned this when Bob Fisher was on in my coverage of Through the Time Barrier and Talking Clue that for 36 weeks, if you count the 10 weeks I spent covering the Kirk Allen serials, I have been covering Black and White Superman. And I must admit, when I popped in the DVD to watch Time Barrier for the episodes, it was almost strange seeing the George Reeves Superman in color. Obviously, I've watched Superman in color over those 36 weeks with the several times I watched Batman v Superman, but it is strange seeing the George Reeves episodes in color when you're so used to seeing them in black and white, especially after the 26 weeks that I've been covering black and white episodes. So, as always, thank you, Dave, for your letter, and I hope to hear from you again in the future, and I hope to hear from any of you, too, in the future. So, if you don't mind, if you want, follow Dave's example. Send an email to me at manofscreen at gmail.com or send me an iTunes review, and I'll happily read it on mic. With that being said, I'm going to take a short break, play a podcast promo, and then I'm going to come back with Olsen's Millions. Hang around, folks. Stop and listen! Stop and listen to me! Listen! Listen! Listen to me! They're not human! Everyone! They're here already! You're next! November 4th, 1988. Earth is invaded by an alien alliance composed of several species, including the Dominators, the Kunz, the Tanagarians, and the Durlins. And they want our superheroes. Even though Australia has been decimated, the United Nations response is unequivocal. Drop dead. First Strike, the Invasion podcast, takes you back to that moment in time and covers the entire Invasion DC Comics crossover. Issue by issue, tie-in by tie-in. Join Bass and Siskoid at fireandwaterpodcast.com or on iTunes. First Strike, the Invasion podcast. A proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Remember, Melbourne. All right, welcome back, folks. We're going to head right into Olsen's Millions. Original broadcast date was June 4th, 1955. Writer was David Chandler. Director was George Blair. Guest cast included Elizabeth Patterson as Mrs. Peabody, George E. Stone as Big George, Leonard Carey as Herbert the Butler, Richard Reeves as Stacy Tracy, and Tyler McDuff as the Delivery Boy. Now for our synopsis, brought to you by supermanhomepage.com. Ever since she inherited some money 50 years ago, Mrs. Peabody has devoted her life to caring for homeless cats. Daily Planet editor Perry White has sent cub reporter Jimmy Olsen to cover a story on Mrs. Peabody and her felines. In spite of the elderly woman's forgetfulness, the interview seems to be going smoothly until a cat jumps into Mrs. Peabody's safe. Jimmy accidentally steps on the tail of one of the animals, causing him to fall against the door. Mrs. Peabody's furry friend is now trapped within the metal box. Worse yet, Mrs. Peabody cannot remember the combination. Jimmy has called Clark Kent, who has changed to Superman. Daily Planet, Kent speaking. This is Jimmy, Mr. Kent. I'm out on that cat story, and I accidentally locked one of them in the safe. Well, uh, what do you expect me to do about it, Jimmy? Try calling the police. Well, there's no time for that. Couldn't you get a hold of Superman? Well, that's a pretty tall order, Jimmy. Uh, I'll see what I can do. What's up, Clark? Well, nothing, Lois. Just a little accident. Excuse me. Don't worry, we'll get her out of there. Oh, golly, Superman, I'd rather see you than Jimmy Valentine right now. I can see why. Jimmy, here. (laughs) Oh, jeepers, thanks. Don't thank me. Thank her nine lives. She would have used them all up by now if it weren't for you. 
Excuse me? The cat has been saved and Superman leaves. Jimmy is holding the feline when Mrs. Peabody returns. You saved a young man. You saved her life. No, no, that's just it. I didn't save her. I couldn't have pulled that door off the safe. Oh, don't be modest, Mr. Gallagher. I won't listen to another word. No, I'm not Mr. Gallagher. I'm Topsy. But I thought I mean, it was... I'm Jimmy Olsen, I think. Well, names don't matter. It's deeds that count, young man. And just to show my appreciation, I'm going to give you a million dollars. Now, that would be very nice. Mm -hmm. A million dollars? Mm -hmm. It'll be in your name in the Metropolis National Bank within an hour. News of Jimmy's wealth is in the Daily Planet. As criminals Big George and Stacy Tracy try to plan to st how they can steal Olsen's money, Lois Lane, Clark Kent, and Perry White cannot help but wonder if being a millionaire has gone to their young friend's head. Clark, uh, do you think it's going to change him much? Jimmy? No, Lois, he's much too level-headed for that. Hi, Jimmy. Well, how does it feel to be a millionaire? Well, um, I tell you, Miss Lane, it feels kind of, uh, nice. Here, uh, have a cigar, Mr. Kent. I don't smoke, Jimmy. You have one, Miss Lane? Oh, I gave up cigars years ago. Jeepers, how am I going to use my new gold lighter if nobody will have a smoke? Well, that's just one of the problems that you millionaires have to face. Well, uh... I'll see you two later. I just dropped by to say hello on my way downtown. I have so many things to attend to. A millionaire has responsibilities, you know. Well, uh, ta-ta. Oh. oh, I'm sorry, Chief. It's entirely my fault, sir. We peasants deserve to be knocked over. But don't call me Chief. And where do you think you're going? Oh, I rented a new apartment. I'm going to go see if the furniture has been moved in yet. Not on my time, you're not. In that case, I'm afraid I'll have to turn in my two weeks' notice. You give me two weeks' notice? Take it easy, Chief. Remember, I could buy this paper right out from under you. Great Caesar's ghost. Jimmy is spending extravagantly. He's rented a new apartment, hired a butler named Herbert, and even quit his job at the Planet. Herbert has given Jimmy work references, but the new millionaire refuses to see them because he believes he's a good judge of character. Clark, however, is rather suspicious of the gentleman's gentleman. Now, Clark, what was it you wanted to speak to me about before? Well, Jimmy, you're a millionaire now, and you have to be more careful of strangers, even people like Herbert. Clark, sometimes I think you'd be suspicious even of Superman himself. Well, I happen to know Superman a little bit better than I know Herbert. What now? Yes, sir? Want to talk to Mr. Olson? Your name, sir? Stacy Tracy. Mr. Stacy Tracy to see you, sir. Show him in. Mr. Olson, I'm going to make you a rich man. I'm already a rich man. Then I'm going to make you richer. This I'd like to see. This drawer is empty, right? Empty, right. Now, I have here a bottle of genuine seawater from the sea. That's the best place to get it from, I suppose. <laughs> I pour the seawater in the box, and then I add two drops of my secret settling formula. One, two.
Mr. Olson. It's the secret of the ages. Gold. Gold from seawater. Mr. Kent. Look, Mr. Kent. He did it. He did it. Just what do you expect Mr. Olson here to do about this? $50,000. That's all I need to build a huge converter. Is that all? How can I lose? Pardon me, sir. I wouldn't do that. Tell this creep to get lost. Yes, what is it, Herbert? If you'll pardon the expression, sir, this here gentleman is attempting to take you over. I resent that. Undoubtedly. Hey, let go of me. You see? Small bag of imitation gold flakes, which he cleverly drops into the drawer. Herbert, do your duty. With pleasure, sir. Hey, you can't do this to me. Hey, wait a minute. You can't do this to me. Hey, let go. Please. Let go. Well done, Herbert. Thank you, sir. We try. From now on, Herbert, anything you say goes. Thank you, sir. All I ask is your confidence. Well, looks like I was wrong about Herbert. Oh, by the way, do you mind dropping me off at the planet office? But unknown to him and Jimmy, Stacy Tracy was executing a phase of a plan Big George has to get his hands on old Jimmy Olsen's million dollars. After Jimmy drops Clark off at the planet, he wants to give Lois a tour of his new apartment. Herbert. Yes, sir. Hang my hat. Uh, sir, something happened while you was gone. Later, Herbert. I want to show Miss Lane around the apartment. Uh, but Superman was here, sir. Superman? Here? Uh, yes, ma'am. And uh, he left this for you, sir. Well, for heaven's sakes, open it. Dear Jim, get whatever is left of the million dollars in cash and meet me at the last house on Valley Street in Pinehurst. Hurry. There's no time to lose. I will explain later. Signed, Superman. But, Jim, how do we know this is really from Superman? Well, if Herbert says so, that's good enough for me. Oh, thank you, sir. Well, I'm going to call Clark and see what he knows about it. No, Miss Lane, we, we don't have any time for that. It'll only take a minute. Herbert, how long ago did this come? Half an hour, sir. Go down and get the car ready. We'll be right out. Yes, sir. Tilly, get me Mr. Kent's office. Oh, he's not in. Well, when he gets back, tell him Jimmy and I have gone to Pinehurst to meet Superman. That's right, Pinehurst. Herbert has driven Lois and Jimmy to Pinehurst, where they find Big George and Stacy Tracy instead of Superman. Come in. You're late. Where's Superman? We're supposed to meet him here. There's been a little slip-up, kid. Slip-up? Yeah. Hey, wait a minute. That's the guy that tried to sell me the gold machine. Come on, Miss Lane, we're getting out of here. Not yet, I'm sorry. Herbert. Jim, this looks like one time the butler actually did it. But why did it have to be my butler? Give me that. Give me the key, kid. I left the key at the bank where I picked up the strong box. I figured if this thing were really on the level, Superman could rip the lock open. The money's in there, Big George. I saw him go into the bank myself. Now, wait a minute, fellas. We can talk this over. Have a cigar, Herbert? Have a cigar? Have a cigar. Okay. Herbert, you know what to do with them. Stacy and me will meet you later. Very good, sir. He said you know what to do with us. Do you? 
I'm afraid so, ma'am. On your way. Now, Lois and Jimmy are being held prisoner by Big George and his gang in a room lined with lead, the block Superman's X-ray vision. And to think I trusted you. That was the old idea, sir. I had to gain your confidence so as you'd believe anything I said. You ought to be ashamed of yourself taking advantage of a brainless boy. Miss Lane, please. What do you intend to do with us? I'll just lock you in here. These walls are all lined with lead, so as even Superman couldn't see through them. That is, if he knew where to look for you. Jimmy, it's no use. This place is like a vault. Hey, wait a minute, Miss Lane. Do you hear something? It's Superman. He's somewhere near. Hmm, but near isn't close enough. He's never going to find us. We've got to attract his attention some way. What's that got to do with it? It must be a ventilator shaft. Fine, so we've got fresh air. Now all we need is food and water for the next 100 years. Jimmy, if we could get enough smoke going up this shaft... It would look like one million other chimneys. But we could send smoke signals in Morse code. Golly, Miss Lynn, that's great. I didn't know you knew Morse code. I don't. I thought you used to be a Boy Scout. I never got beyond tenderfoot. But I do remember the code for SOS. It's three dots, three dashes, and three dots. Wonderful. If Superman saw that, he'd know something was wrong. But golly, Miss Lane, we don't have anything to burn. Even my shirt's wet. Do you remember what happened at the bank, Jim? Just to play it safe, we left the money box empty, and it's all in here. Oh, oh, you don't mean... You mean... It's your money, Jim. What do you say? Well, I guess I could spare a little. Well, there's 20,000. Nothing like having money to burn. This chain must open and close the ventilator shaft like a damper on a stovepipe. So if we work it like a telegraph key, we'll be able to send our SOS. Yeah, that's right. Here, take that. There goes 10 years pay up in smoke. If Superman sees the chimney, he will be able to find Lois and Jimmy. Lois and Jimmy have been forced to burn all the money in order to make a fire sufficient enough to send a signal to Superman. Meanwhile, Big George has discovered that Jimmy's box only contains blank paper. He, Stacy, and Herbert are about to teach Lois and Jimmy a lesson when they get the surprise of their lives. Thanks for the smoke signal. Hiawatha himself couldn't have done any better. Superman! Those are the guys! Now, with guns and Stacy Tracy's head useless against the Metropolis Marvel, the trio of confidence men will spend the rest of their lives in a prison cell. Herbert, turn in your uniform. You're fired. All I want to know, sir, is how did you find out? When you have enough money, Herbert, you can do lots of things. And so, Mr. White, sir... If you would please give me my job back, I promise never to act like a millionaire again. You promise never to call me chief again? Never to call you... Never again. All right. Report for work in the morning. Oh, golly, thank you, chief. What did you call me? I... 
Nothing. I, uh, I'll see you in the morning, sir. <laughs> oh, um, Mr. Camp. Yes, Jimmy. Could, um, could I please borrow 15 cents for bus fare from you? Why, sure, Jimmy. Here's a quarter. Just don't use it to hire a butler, will you? No, no, I won't. Thank you. This episode is based on the Jimmy Olsen comic story, Olsen's Millions, which appeared in Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, number three in January of 1955. This same issue also inspired the episode The Bully of Dry Gulch, which I'm going to talk about in next week's show. We're going to find that Jack Larson really popularized the character of Jimmy Olsen during this time period, and that's one of the reasons that, in the mid-50s, that DC commissioned the Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen comic book. Which, as you can see, started roughly around this time. So, you know, there's a lot of talk about, especially amongst comic fans, how what really matters is the comics. And, you know, and rightly so, because that's where everything originated. And so it only makes sense that the adapted media, the TV, the movies, the radio stuff would adapt what we saw in the comics. But I always get a kick when the comics are informed by the adapted media. This, of course, can be overdone, as we've seen the influence of Superman the movie kind of permeate for decades, but I do enjoy seeing, when it's not overdone, I enjoy seeing stuff from the adapted media make its way into the comics. Almost legitimizes it in a way that it hasn't been before. So, we're going to find that right off the bat, Jimmy is interviewing this woman, Mrs. Peabody. This is her only scene. Mrs. Peabody is basically a plot device to get the money into Jimmy Olsen's hands. Apparently, she's come into some money and she has spent $5 million feeding alley cats, which... I guess is a noble calling. I'm not sure her neighbors would necessarily agree. Be a lot of extra felines running around the neighborhood. But that's where she's chosen to do good, so we're not going to condemn her for that. You know, Jimmy is showing off his interviewing skills right here, you know, repeating the quote back to her in a very monotone fashion. You know, Jimmy could sound, in my opinion, a little more excited about this interview, but this is probably not something he really wants to do. I'm guessing Jimmy fancies himself a newsman, so he doesn't necessarily want to be uh, spending a lot of his time doing a story on the crazy cat lady. Now, interestingly enough, the first thing we notice is that Mrs. Peabody is having a little difficulty with names. She can't keep the names of the cats straight, and she at one point she calls Jimmy Mr. Peabody. So, this woman, despite her cat obsession, is not quite all there. And then we're going to find, right enough, that she has a safe. That's sitting wide open, because she can't remember the combination. The first question I ask, why does this woman have a safe if she's not going to close it? That would seem to be the, defeat the purpose of having the safe. Do the math. There's, a, there's an open safe, and Mrs. Peabody doesn't close it because she doesn't know the combination. So what do you think is the first thing that Jimmy is going to do by accident in this situation? If you guessed he was going to step on a cat's tail, get scared, and close the safe, you would be right. And now there's a problem. There is a cat in the safe. Mrs. Peabody goes to the next room to see if she can figure out what she did with the combination of the damn safe. And Jimmy is going to call Clark to get a hold of Superman to save the cat. I'm not sure when the signal watch came into play in the comics, but Jimmy really could have used the signal watch here. But he has the next best thing. He has Clark Kent's phone number. So, Jimmy calls Clark to get a hold of Superman. Clark changes. Here comes the man to steal. Superman shows up with a smile, pulls the door off the safe, and rescues the kitten. And we're all happy. Especially Mrs. Peabody. I mean, she's made her life saving cats. The last thing she wants is for Topsy, I believe the cat's name was caught in the safe. I mean, she can't even keep the cat's name straight, and she can't keep Jimmy's name straight. At one point, she called Jimmy Topsy, and she got Jimmy so flustered that she called him Topsy, so 
some comedy going on there. It's not particularly funny, but like I said, this whole opening scene is a plot device to get the money into Jimmy's hands. Jimmy saves the cat, and Mrs. Peabody is so grateful that she gives him a million dollars. I wish somebody would give me a million dollars, just because I did something good. So now, Jimmy is now a millionaire. I bet you, I bet you saw that coming. Especially since the title of this episode is Olsen's Millions. Although it really should be Olsen's Million, as he was only given $1 million for saving the cat. For some reason, the Daily Planet has decided it's a good idea to put Jimmy's good fortune in the paper. I mean, what would you do if, well, I guess, what would you do if one of your staff members won a million dollars? You'd put it in the paper so everybody knew about it. And so nefarious criminals here, like uh, Big George and Stacy Tracy, who thinks of these names, will try to steal it. We don't see who these two guys are right away, but, you know, we do see that this news story got their attention. So, you, you know, they're going to factor heavily into the story as it goes forward. So, we get our first shot of the planet. Lois is wondering if the money will change Jimmy. And just as Clark says no, almost on cue, Jimmy comes in in an expensive suit and hat and a gentleman's cane. And he's got cigars that he's trying to pass off to Lois and Clark. He's got a gold lighter and he's mouthing off to Perry. Yeah, Clark, Jimmy is showing a real level head here. This money is not going to Jimmy's head at all. He even scares the life out of Perry by saying he can buy the paper out from under him. And I love Perry's facial expression here as he says his trademark, Great Caesar's Ghost. It's one of pure horror. You know, I mentioned in Jimmy Olsen, Boy Editor, that one of Perry's worst nightmares has got to be Jimmy Olsen running the Daily Planet for 24 hours. I think what could be possibly be worse is that scenario being real and Jimmy owning the planet, and Perry having to report to him. Could you imagine Perry White working for Jimmy Olsen? I couldn't. At least not this Perry White, not this Jimmy Olsen. So, anyway, Jimmy is putting his millions to good use. He has quickly found a new apartment and a butler to go with it, because if you're rich and you have your own apartment, you may as well have a butler too. A gentleman's gentleman. And it's a good thing this guy isn't Jarvis, because otherwise he'd really be in trouble. But this butler's name is Herbert, and Jimmy is not even going to bother checking his credentials. Jimmy is such a good judge of character that Herbert is hired. There's nothing that could possibly go wrong with this. So, Clark shows up. He wants to see how the other half lived, and the one thing Jimmy's apartment does have going for him, that he has a nice view. And apparently he's also spent a ton of money on fake art. It might be a, it might only be a print, as Clark points out to Jimmy, but it's a Van Gogh print, so that makes it all better. Alright, whatever happens to sleep at night, Jimmy. Jimmy asks for some refreshments, and Herbert comes back with some Sundays. He arouses Clark's suspicion very early on here, especially when he says that he kind of did a five-year stretch uh, at a drugstore. And the the phrase five-year stretch, which obviously criminals use to refer to time in prison, got on his radar, and Clark is immediately concerned about Herbert. After they get their Sundays, uh, this delivery boy shows up for a... Delivery, obviously. And do you recognize him? If you've been watching along with this show, then you definitely would, because this is Tyler McDuff, who played the role of Frankie on The Boy Who Hated Superman. Thank you. Now, Clark, what was it you wanted to talk to me about? Well, Jimmy, it's oh, a... I'll get it, sir. Uh, Olsen live here? This is Mr. Olsen's residence, yes. Acme Department Store. I uh, have some things he bought. It's all right, Herbert. Let him bring him in. Uh, yes, sir. Wait until you see this stuff, Mr. Kent. Everybody's dream come true, huh? Uh-huh. 
It's mine, all mine. Snowshoes? Sure. I want to be prepared for any emergency. Jimmy, they don't fit. Well, all right. Easy. Come on, bring on the rest of it. Take your foot off my expensive table. Oh, sorry, I lost my head. Boxing does. I didn't know you fought. I don't fight, but I play. What are you going to do with these oars? I'm going to roll with them. <laughs> what are you going to roll? My boat. Oh, no, I don't believe it. Jimmy, I, it hasn't even rained. When are you expecting to flood? Look, <laughs> mister, do me a favor, huh? If you ever go shopping again, try another store. Jimmy, what are you going to do with all this stuff? I don't know. Look at it, I guess. Boy, this being a millionaire is the greatest. If the chief could only see you now. Obviously, this is not Frankie. This is just Tyler McDuff playing a different character, but I recognized him immediately when he came on to came into the episode. So Jimmy ordered a whole bunch of crap, basically. Snowshoes, oars, even a boat in the apartment. What is he going to do with a boat in his apartment? And what's he gonna do with snowshoes in his living room? And as we go back to a scene of Big George and Stacy, Tracy Stacy talking about how much they want Jimmy's money, I wonder how much is left after all this crap Jimmy bought. So, so Clark wants to talk to Jimmy about warning him about everyone who wants to be his friend now that he's got some money in his pocket. Like I mentioned, Clark is concerned with Herbert. But have you noticed Jimmy, the way he's referring to Clark now? Throughout this entire show, Jimmy's very formal with his elders. Notice Jimmy is now calling him Clark, as opposed to Mr. Kent, like he normally does. So, Jimmy is treating Clark with a very much a familiar, which he's using to demonstrate what he considers his elevated status. Jimmy, with his money, now considers himself either an equal to or slightly above Clark. He's no longer giving him the same respect he gave them when he was a broke cub reporter. All this showing what, you know, what money can do. You come into money too quickly, and yeah, something like this can happen. You, it changes you, and... I mean, I wouldn't know from experience, but I have heard stories of people who've come into money quickly for whatever reason, and, you know, they've become different people. Don't know how to handle the newfound wealth, so. Jimmy's going to get another visitor now, and you can tell that he is... Jimmy's kind of getting tired of it. He kind of almost says, resigned to sending him in. Like I said, Jimmy's getting tired of the visitors. Clark sounds almost prophetic when Stacy Tracy shows up. I mean, we know what Stacy Tracy is up to, but Jimmy does not yet. Stacy is demonstrating this box that he told Jimmy is going to make him richer. And uh, by the way, I hadn't mentioned that Stacy Tracy is played by Richard Reeves, no relation to George, who is a show veteran at this point. We'll see him quite a bit more. You'll see him definitely next season in one of my favorite episodes of the series, The Big Freeze. And Jimmy is very sarcastic with people now that he's rich. You know, and when Stacy says that he is going to make Jimmy rich, Jimmy mouths off that he's already rich. And obviously Tracy not. Missing a beat comments that the device he's bringing will make him richer. And as I'm looking at this box, I'm kind of wondering if that's the same prop from Panic in the Sky. It kind of looks like it. I didn't really get a very good look at the box in Panic because it was kind of shown in long shots. But the rectangular shape and the knobs on the side almost makes me think that this could possibly be the same box from Panic in the Sky. Though Clark is watching closely as, as Stacy Tracy's contraption of seawater and settling formula, he calls it, creates gold. Obviously, Jimmy is exuberant because Jimmy gets exuberant about everything, and he believes everything he sees. But Herbert shows his worth by exposing Stacy's ruse and 
throws him face first out of the apartment. And this convinces everybody, kind of proves Clark's point about Jimmy needing to be wary of strangers. But I, I was quite amused by seeing this scrawny Englishman who plays Herbert throwing out a man of Richard Reeves' size. Stacy Tracy's sales pitch didn't look like it went very well, but when he gets back to Big George, he says it went perfect. Hmm. It almost makes you think these guys are up to something, doesn't it? So, so Jimmy takes Clark back to the Daily Planet, and when they he returns with Lois, because I guess it's one of those things where you got to pick somebody up when you drop someone off, so Clark gets off the train, and then Lois gets right on. And when they get back, Herbert is there bearing a letter from Superman. And the letter asks Jimmy to bring the rest of the money to a house in Pinehurst. Lois is immediately suspicious, but, you know, you know Jimmy. He'll fall for just about anything. And again, Jimmy is putting blind faith in Herbert here, which doesn't seem like a good idea, especially as Big George and Stacey Tracy are waiting for them when they get to their apartment in the house in Pinehurst. And when they get there is when Herbert shows his true colors, pulling a gun on Lois and Jimmy. So Jimmy is trying everything he can to get out of this, and it's nice to see that he finally found takers for those cigars that he's been trying to pawn off on people the whole episode. Back at the planet, Clark finally gets the message that Lois left with Tilly. We've never seen Tilly before, and we're never going to see Tilly ever. We're just going to hear about her. And she gets the message about going to the house in Pinehurst that Superman sent them to. So Clark knows something's up, and well, off he goes while Herbert is leading Jimmy and Lois into what appears to be some kind of bunker. It's, r- it's square... No windows, just a ventilation shaft. And I love Lois's quip about Jimmy being a brainless boy. Jimmy, it seems like as the show goes on and the characters get older, Jimmy gets treated more and more like a child. Probably has something to do with the new uh, children's nature of the show. And despite Herbert's comment about that Superman doesn't know where to look for, for them, Lois and Jimmy can hear him outside. And they try to get a hold of him. At least they're trying to figure out some way to contact him. I mean, the man has super hearing. Uh, can't they just yell to him? But I guess according to the synopsis, that will alert Stacy Tracy, Big George, and Herbert to what's going on. So, with the ventilation system there and the pull chain conveniently located where Lois and Jimmy can pull on it, Jimmy remembers that he rem- knows the Morse code for SOS. Three dots, three dashes, three dots. And they're going to use the chain, the pull chain, to simulate the, the message. However, they have nothing to burn because it's raining out. At least it was, and Jimmy's all wet. So is Lois. So the only thing they have is the money to burn. And we don't know how much of the million is left after all of Jimmy's extravagant purchases. But they put it all at about $50,000 per wad into the chimney and burn it. You know, it's very smart to switch the money on the crooks. But Lois has no trouble throwing Jimmy's money into the fire. And I think Jimmy is regretting that this decision to throw the money into the fire, but I guess if he's not alive to spend it, it doesn't really matter anyway, does it? All the money is gone, and the show editing here, you know, despite the very few flying shots that the color episodes will use, there is one they use, it's kind of a close-up of Superman, and it shows him looking around, and you see him fly from right to left on your screen. Starts with the half shot of him, of his upper torso, and then you see him fly off, and his feet fly off the screen. The way this is edited is very well, because you see him turn his head, it cuts quickly to the chimney, setting out the smoke, and then back to Superman looking around. So, the editing tells us that Superman has seen the smoke signals. And obviously, as soon as we go back to the interior, Superman bursts through the wall in grand fashion. I've said this before, and it bears repeating, that no actor to play Superman bursts through a wall quite the way George Reeves does. And as Superman comes in, 
The crooks run in too, and that's when they see Superman, and this starts a big fight. Herbert empties his gun, and Superman just kind of tears it in half. And for some reason, Stacy Tracy tries to run headfirst into Superman's sternum. I'm not sure what he was trying to accomplish there, other than break his own neck. If he was playing football, he would have been flagged for leading with his head. And his head was down, so... The first thing you learn in football is to always tackle with your head up. I should know, I played for quite a few years. If you run into anything with your head down, one, you can't see where you're going, and secondly, if you hit something, you stand a very good chance of injuring your neck. Not so much if your head is straight up looking in front of you. A little extra knowledge for you people who may or may not be deciding about letting your kids play football or something. Anyway, my favorite shot of this episode, though, is I really love how Superman takes care of Big George and the shotgun. As Big George shows up, he just puts his hand on the barrel of the gun and the backfire knocks out George, scares the hell out of Herbert as the smoke just goes in all directions. I wonder if that was supposed to happen because the actor who plays Herbert, Leonard Carey, looked legitimately frightened by the uh, smoke coming toward him. So After that happens, Jimmy will fire Herbert. The money is gone and he wouldn't be able to pay Herbert anyway. Herbert asks Jimmy how he knew to switch the money, and, well, Jimmy gives this weird explanation that when you have money, you can do lots of things. I'm not sure what that means, but it doesn't exactly explain how and why Jimmy did what he did. So we go right to our ending scene. I love this scene of Jimmy begging for his job back. Perry tries to force a promise out of Jimmy to not call him chief again, but as you know, Jimmy will flub that immediately. This ending is nothing special. Jimmy has learned his lesson. All the money can't possibly be gone. I'd imagine Jimmy can return the stuff that he ordered from the department store, and maybe he can get his deposit back on his apartment. I don't know. But, I don't know. He should have enough money to still kind of move forward. But, I guess he does it. It's all gone. All the million is gone. And he's borrowing bus fare from Clark. So, like I said, a decent episode. Memorable for the way Jimmy acts when he comes into his money and for the smoke signals. That was a scene that always stuck with me. That's a scene that always stuck with me when I was a kid. The burning of the money and using it for smoke signals. And... I really don't have anything further to say on this episode. Like I said, decent one, not too bad. Not that great either, but it was fun. You know, I believe I coined a phrase with semi-private I calling it a Jimmy Olsen comic come to life, but quite a few of these episodes are actually Jimmy Olsen comics come to life. So as a fan of Jimmy Olsen like I am, I find that kind of cool. And, you know, Bob and I have talked countless times that if not for Jack Larson's portrayal of Jimmy Olsen and the long-running Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen comic series, I don't think the character of Jimmy Olsen will be around to this day. So, that being said, I'm going to take a quick break. I'm going to play a promo. Then we're going to come back with Clark Kent Outlaw. Hang around, folks. Rocketed from the doomed planet Krypton, Baby Kal-El landed in Smallville, Kansas, where he was found and raised by the Kents. Growing up, he was raised with morals and values which would stay with him for the rest of his life. Now, as an adult, he protects the city of Metropolis and the world as Superman, fighting for truth, justice, and the American way. My name is Mario Benesi, and I host a show called Up, Up, and Away, the podcast dedicated to anything and everything Superman. From 1938 to today, I cover it all. From comics and movies to TV, radio, and more, you can bet I've covered it on Up, Up, and Away. Or I will cover it. It's kind of how these shows work. Now, this is a character that's meant a lot to me for a great many years, and this show is my love letter to my hero. 
so if you love Superman as much as I do, or you want to learn a little bit more about him, check out the show. It can be found on iTunes and Podomatic, as well as through Facebook. If you want to contact yours truly, drop me a line at mvanese94 at yahoo.com. That's BSN Boy, E-N-N-E-S-E. Up, up, and away as a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network. All right, welcome back, folks. We're going to head right into Clark Kent Outlaw. Original broadcast date was September 10th, 1955. So apparently there was a bit of a hiatus between episodes 7 and 8, as the previous episode, Olsen's Millions, was originally broadcast on June 4th, and this one is not until September, so... The writer was Leroy H. Zarin, and director was George Blair. Guest cast include John Doucette as Foster, Sid Tomac as Curtis, Tristram Coffin as Jason Stoddard, George Eldridge as Thomas Wingate. If that last name Eldridge sounds familiar to you, it should, because... George Eldridge's younger brother, John Eldridge, played in several episodes of The Adventures of Superman, including Crime Wave, where he was Walter Canby. He was Burt Burnside in Shot in the Dark. And we'll see him a couple more times. We'll see him in The Girl Who Hired Superman. He plays Mr. Rockwell, I believe his name is. And we'll see him toward the end of the series in Superman's Wife. So I'm not sure if we see George again, but we'll see his younger brother, John, quite a few more times before the series has run its course. Additionally, Patrick O'Moore plays the role of Bennett, and Lynn Thomas is Anne Milan. And now for our synopsis, brought to you by SupermanHomePage.com. Foster and Curtis are key members in a gang responsible for the disappearance of some very important people in Metropolis. They are currently in a shootout with Inspector Bill Henderson and the police force. Daily Planet editor Perry White and reporter Clark Kent are on the scene to get the story for the city's greatest newspaper. Things seem intense until tear gas is thrown into the shack where the criminals are holed up. Foster turns himself over to the authorities but Curtis refuses to give up so easily. As Henderson's men continue to fire at Curtis, Foster plants some money in the glove compartment of Clark's car. Meanwhile, Curtis likes to stick a dynamite. Kent rushes to change into Superman. The Man of Steel takes the brunt of the explosion before pushing Curtis out of the cabin. Curtis is finally in custody. Things are getting more complicated for both Superman and Clark Kent. Curtis and Foster are accusing Kent of helping them in their crime. Thanks to Superman, we've got our prisoners. How'd you find out where the payroll was hidden? Well, we'll take that up later. But the money, where is it? Where in Federation have you been? Well, I'm sorry, Chief, but there are a lot of bullets flying around here. Speak up. Where's the money? Go see if Superman's still in the shack. No, wait, I'll tell you. Foster, he's the one that... Just a minute, Curtis. Lieutenant, I made the deal. I'll spill it. We got no choice, Kent. We're caught. Give him the money. Money? What money? What are you talking about? Now, don't try to clam up on me. You know where the money is. They'll find out you've been working with us sooner or later. Are you trying to say Kent's mixed up in this? He's been a big help on this caper. He's got the inside dope on a lot of things in Metropolis. Yeah, now it comes to me why he tipped off you cops about our being here. With us out of the way, he grabs off all the loot. Well, I've witnessed some strange things, but Kent's always helped the police. It's a try to get even, Curtis, but it's too clumsy. Just a minute, Inspector. I want a break, that's why I squealed. If you don't believe me, have a look for yourself. I saw Kent stash the money in the glove compartment of that car. Well, Kent, how'd you happen to have the money? I'm not quite sure, Bill. Well, knowing you as well as I do, I can't believe it. Now, now, you... just a minute. Isn't it pretty obvious I'm being framed? Kent, I'd have staked my life in your honesty, but... Look, as a friend, I'd like to give you every break I can, but the... there's the money and uh, all of us as witness. Kent, you'll have to stand by for inquiry and probable trial. Yes, it doesn't look very good for me, does it? Both Perry and Inspector Henderson believe that Clark is innocent. In spite of this, Clark has a plan. I know perfectly well that you're innocent. 
I posted bail for you, didn't I? But I'm smart enough to know that you have something in mind. Now, what is it? Well, Chief, I guess I should know better than try and fool you. Here's my idea. Now, we know those two hoodlums are only part of an organization, right? The only way we can find out who the others are is for me to pretend I'm on the wrong side of the law. That way, we'll be able to find out how they're operating. Great Caesar's ghost, what a story. But it's a terrific risk. What if you can't clear yourself? I know it's a gamble, but I'm already committed. And now I'm depending on you to help me on my way. How? Fire me. That's right, fire me. Loudly, firmly, and lay it on thick. Fire you? But what about your friends? Why, Jimmy Olsen and Lois Lane would be broken-hearted. I know, Chief, and I'm sorry about them, but we can't take a chance on their making an inadvertent slip and giving the whole show away. No, I think we'd better start planting the idea in their heads right now. Okay. <clears throat> oh, Lois. Yes, Chief? Have you seen Jimmy Olsen? Well, he's right here. Uh, we're worried about Clark. Is there anything we can do, Chief? I want you both to stay right there. You'll be busy enough. I simply won't have it. You're a disgrace, Kent. You can turn in your press card and get your pay from the cashier. Yes, sir. There's no room for the criminal on the staff of the Daily Planet. Oh, Jimmy. <laughs> and Henderson has to make sure that Curtis and Foster are able to be bailed out of prison. Clark Kent fired. Ace reporter and a member of gang. The Daily Planet will never countenance underworld activities, says Perry White, editor of the Planet. Yeah, it's quite a story, isn't it? It is indeed. It practically convicts you before you even go to trial. And you've got yourself in such a spot you'll have to go to trial. You know that, don't you? Yes, I hope it doesn't go any further than that. You could go to jail. And all because you got a crazy notion to ride along with this frame-up. Look, Bill, sometimes we all have to take chances to get these hoods, don't we? It's my job. I'm a cop. You're a reporter. But all the same, I admire you for it. Well, thanks. Now watch yourself. These boys play rough. And speaking of these boys, just where are they? I've got them outside. I had the DA ask the judge to set bail low enough so they could meet it. Well, let's get this show on the road, shall we? Then Foster and Curtis in. We had to allow bail for your new friends, so we set it so high they couldn't make it, we thought. But a man named Jason met the amount a few minutes ago. Looks like you fellas have a big organization. What are you doing, pal? Planning state's evidence? No, oh, very funny. I know you're framing, and you know it too, but nobody else will believe it. Too bad, Kent. If we get to go to the big house, there's no reason why you shouldn't come right along too, huh? Oh, you did a pretty good job on me, all right. And you'll finish it when you book me. Look, Inspector, if I can't get a job on another paper, and I doubt very much if I'll be able to, will you tell me I'm going to make a living? That's your problem, Kent. Getting yourself involved with these monkeys getting fired, you brought this all on your own head. However, I'm warning you, all three of you, right now, keep your noses clean and stay in the city. I will if I get a chance to, but if I can't get a job, I'm going to make a living somehow. On your way, gentlemen. What do you think? Could be a bluff. Could be we really hooked him. Let's go see. Clark has been convinced by Curtis and Foster to work with them. Relax, pal. Guy gets kind of beat looking for a job all day, don't he? Especially when he don't get hired. Okay, so what do you want? You see, Foster, sometimes a guy don't know who his real friends are, right? Right. Look, you're in. Now, it looks like I've got to talk to you whether I want to or not. Listen, Kent, maybe the dirty trick I pulled on you was a good thing. I wasn't kidding when I said you were hep to a lot of things going on here in Metropolis. We'll give you a job. You'll make more in a year than a hundred reporters. 
Well, it looks like I've got to do business with you. I never thought I would, though, people of your type. Well, if you're leveling, why don't we go see about it? Okay, let's go. Fancy layout, huh? Huh? Might as well begin now, Kent. What have you got for us? Probably more than you bargained for. I'll show you. Have you got a safe? Yeah. Over here. Watch. There you are, gentlemen. Hey, how did you do... Well, you remember Jimmy Valentine? He was supposed to have super sensitive fingers. He could feel the tumbler slipping into place. Just a gift, I guess. Just a gift, maybe. You know, it takes a trained safe cracker to open that safe. You sure you've been a reporter all your life? Well, it does begin to look like I've had a little past, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it sure does. And a big future with us. Man, oh man, wait till the boss hears about you. Boss? Who is he? You'll find out. Fair enough. Well, now that you know about me, uh, how do you fellas operate? There's something else you'll find out in about an hour. Ever hear of Tom Wingate? Tom Wingate. Oh, the wholesale jeweler? Yeah, we got an appointment tonight. One he knows nothing about. And by the way, this might be right up your alley, Mr. Jimmy Kent Valentine. Thomas Wingate has received a telephone call that his jewelry store has been robbed. It was actually from Curtis, who, along with Foster has knocked out the shop owner in front of his home. Wingate has awakened in the hospital. He's being questioned by FBI agent Jason Stoddard. Oh, my. <coughs> oh, my head. Easy, Mr. Wingate. You're in good hands. Just take it easy. What, what happened? Where, where am I? My office phoned and... Don't worry. I'm Stoddard, Federal Bureau of Investigation. You're in the hospital. We've been after a ring of jewel thieves who specialize in uncut diamonds. They're harder to identify than cut gems, of course, and therefore easier to market. Then the telephone called from my office. It was just an excuse? Of course. They wanted to capture you and force you to open your safe. We caught up with them just after they knocked you out. Unfortunately, they got away, but we were lucky enough to save you. Hello. Washington calling Mr. Stoddard. No, thank you. Stoddard speaking. Well, yes, sir, I'm on the Wingate case right now. You're right, sir. They might try it. Well, I'll ask him about it immediately. Yes, and we'll take every precaution. All right, sir. Mr. Wingate, did you recently bring a large shipment of uncut diamonds from South Africa? Well, then, why do you ask? Large and medium stones, approximately 940 carats. Yes, I did. Now, that's the shipment the ring was after. Thank heavens they didn't get into your office. But, Mr. Stoddard, the shipment isn't at my office. I have it in my apartment in a hidden safe I just had put in. Mr. Wingate, you're being pretty careless with a shipment of that value. Those diamonds must be moved to a safer place, and you're in no condition to do it. What's the combination of the safe? I don't know. My wife has it. And she's out of town until Tuesday afternoon, and I can't get in touch with her. All right. Where is the safe? I'll have a man watch it. In the hall linen closet, behind the second shelf. Well? How do you like that? It's amazing. Anyone would fall for that setup and spill everything they knew. And plenty of suckers have fallen for it, Kent. We get a couple of them under lock and key and another... Shut up, Foster. Evening, Mr. Kent. Good evening. Congratulations, you're a very good actor. Well, we have the location of a safe. We know it holds a fortune in uncut diamonds. And we know that you, Mr. Kent, have a knack for opening safes. 
Well, what do you think, gentlemen? Is Mr. Clark Kent sincere? Does he want to join us? Or spy on us? Well, supposing I bring you the Wingate Stones, will that prove where I stand? Go ahead. And Curtis will go with you. To be sure you don't drop in on the police first. Fair enough. Think we can trust him? Well, we'll soon find out. As Clark and Curtis leave to do the job, reporters Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen are caught. They are hoping to make Kent go straight. Lois and Jimmy are now Stoddard's hostages and assurance that Clark commits the theft of the gems. If he doesn't follow Stoddard's orders or if the police are alerted, Jimmy and Lois will pay the ultimate price with their lives. Time is of the essence, but Clark has a plan. As Curtis stays with Stoddard and Foster to guard Lois and Jimmy, Kent changes into Superman and flies at great speed to the Empire Diamond Mines. Pop my word, it's Superman! Oh, you've heard of me then? Heard of you? My dear chap, everyone's heard of you. Though I scarcely ever expected to meet you. My name is Bennett, overseer of the mines here, you know. Nice to meet you, Mr. Bennett. Can I offer you a spot of tea? No, thank you. The fact of the matter is I'm in rather a hurry. I'd like to ask a favor, though. Oh, anything, old boy. Well, it's rather a large favor. I'd like to borrow about 900 carats of uncut diamonds. Oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. I'm afraid you've come to old Mother Hubbard. If I had any, of course, you'd be more than welcome to borrow them. But the fact is, the cupboard's bare. I sent out every single stone from this place yesterday. I see. Well, could I dig them myself? I mean, of course, I'll return them. Help yourself, my dear fellow. <laughs> Thank you. Not one to be discouraged, Superman digs for them himself with the aid of super strength and vision. The precious gems are now in his hands, and the last son of Krypton is one step closer to rescuing Lois and Jimmy from the evil clutches of Jason Stoddard and his gang. We aren't going to wait much longer. In any event, I think we'd better clear out of Metropolis. That's good news. How about them? Well, we won't leave any evidence behind. The Wingate Stones, Mr. Jason. Uncut diamonds. Raw stones. It's hard to believe these just came from Wingate's safe. Yes, isn't it? Now are you satisfied as to where I stand? Nice work, Kent. But we've got news for you. We're pulling out of Metropolis. It's too hot here. You want to come with us? What about them? We can turn loose the people we're already holding. They only saw my secretary, Anne, and myself, and then only under conditions of shock. But your friends here, they've been foolish enough to meet all of us and to sit in on an actual job. Oh, you mean my little diamond raid? Yes. As such, they're witnesses against you and us. We think they should be, shall we say, eliminated. Any objections, Kent? Objections? Why, no, of course not. As a matter of fact, I resent having to look at them. They remind me of the, of the newspaper and my getting fired and Perry White. I don't want any part of them. That fits, then, because there's one more proof I want from you. What's that? You're elected to get rid of them. And this time, Curtis will go with you. You tell him he's crazy, Mr. Kent. You're not going to do anything like that, are you? Why not? In the rackets, it's dog eat dog, isn't it? I'll be back and without him. Come on. Think you'll get rid of him? Maybe. But somehow I don't believe it. They've all been close friends for years. Kent may be trying to trick us. But it's just possible he's made one mistake. I'm going to check on that right now. Clark has decided to go to the Daily Planet to deal with Lois and Jimmy. He also tells Curtis that he wants to get even with Perry White for firing him. Jimmy and Lois are bound and gagged behind one another in the editor's office as Curtis and Clark burn some papers on a chair. By the time the flames spread, Clark and his new ally can establish an alibi. Clark and Curtis have returned to Stoddard. Well? Boss, this guy's a genius. You should have seen the gimmick he set up to rub out those reporters. Yes, I think he is pretty clever. Hey, what's going on? 
You'll find out. Over there. Feeling better? I certainly am. Thanks to you and your FBI. Now, uh, once again, Mr. White, you're absolutely certain that only you and Clark Kent knew that your firing him was just an act. Yes, I am. Kent wanted to be able to pretend he was a member of the gang so he could unmask them. Excellent. Bring him in here. Kent! This whole setup's phony, Chief. This is the gang. Yes, but I thought that... I know. You got slugged and you thought the FBI saved you. Yes, and then I went out... And you talked, as others have. They're prisoners in the basement. Tell them the mistake they made. I have connections, White. I was able to find out that you personally posted bail for Kent. Now, a man wouldn't do that for a friend and then fire him. Yes? When? I see. Yes, we'll pick you up on the way. That was Anne. I sent her after you and Kent. She saw you leave the planet. She also heard a burglar alarm go off. The police just picked up the two people you were supposed to have killed. But they're alive and talking. They'll bring the cops here. Well, you've still got about ten minutes. Let me rub them out. No, wait a minute. Maybe not getting involved in a murder rap with the other two was a good thing. No reason to start now. What do we do with them? All we need is a little head start. A quick sleep and we'll be out of town. Here. Harry and Clark have been forced to take sleeping pills. This allows Clark to have more freedom as Superman after Stoddard. Curtis and Foster leave to make their getaway. Metropolis Marvel hold on to their car as they attempt to drive to parts unknown. Three judo chops make short work of the gangsters. The police arrive at Lois and Jimmy in time to put Stoddard and his men behind bars. Jimmy and Lois enter Stoddard's hideout to awaken Perry and Clark. Mm. Jimmy, Lois, what happened? You phony criminal, you. What a killer you turned out to be. Fast asleep while Superman did all the work. Well, better him than me, I guess. Are you all right, Chief? Yeah, I'm a little groggy. What about these diamonds? They're not the ones from Wingate's safe. Oh, they belong to Superman. Uh, he has to put them back, too. Some kind of a loan, he said. Mr. Kent. Yes? What if that alarm hadn't gone off? And if the fire had really gotten started in that chair, things could have been pretty hot for us. Oh, about the chair, yes. Well, if you remember, I gave it to Mr. White for his birthday. Tell him about it, Chief. Well, Kent's been ribbing me for a long time about dozing off with a lighted cigar. He said I ought to have a special chair just made for... You mean, so the chair's fireproof? Yeah. And the fire couldn't have really gotten started. That's right, Jimmy. That's fine. But what if something had gone wrong? Well, in that case, I guess Superman would have to show up in time, as usual. <clears throat> Let me be the first to say, I really like this episode. This is one of my favorite episodes of the color episodes. In this particular story, Clark Kent Outlaw was based on a story of the same name, which appeared in Superman number 98, July of 1955. And this episode starts off with a shootout between Henderson, some cops, and the criminals. So, right off the bat, this episode has given us some action. And during the sh it's during the shootout that Clark and Perry kind of just drive up. And apparently these particular people have been threatening Clark, but he is not concerned. He has simply been threatened before and thinks nothing of it. After a brief shootout, Henderson flushes these guys out with some tear gas. And this forces Foster to come on out. And Foster comes out, has money in his pocket, he gets arrested, and he sticks some of the money into the glove compartment of Clark's car. Perhaps this is what Henderson means by getting even. So during the shootout, Superman puts an end to it by... Stepping on some dynamite that Curtis was going to throw, creating a 
hole in the floor, which is probably a breakaway. A very nice shot. Superman jumps on the dynamite, explodes, and you see him sitting in a little bit of a hole. Nice little effect there. I liked it. Curtis is arrested here, and apparently, according to Henderson, Curtis is a key man in uh, just crime wave that seems to be going on. Henderson asks about the money from a payroll heist, and Foster says something to Clark, telling him to give Henderson the money, and this kind of confuses the hell out of Henderson, and Foster points out that Foster and Curtis are trying to set up Clark, but no one's buying it until the money is found in the glove compartment of the car that Clark and Perry drove up in. And you know what? They all turn on Clark very quickly here. You know, it never occurs to them at all that Foster could have just put the money in there. After all, it was Foster who knew where the money was, not anyone else. So it didn't dawn on anybody, oh, you know, Foster could have just stuck it in there while we weren't looking. I mean, that's how it looks in the first scene, but it doesn't quite jive with what they say in the next scene as Clark is pacing around Perry's office. Perry posted bail for Clark, so that shows to some extent that he's confident of Clark's innocence. But he can read his best reporter like a book and Clark comes through for him. Because Perry knows from just from Clark's demeanor that he's up to something. And he's going to use this attempted frame-up to go undercover in the uh, Foster and Curtis's criminal organization. Only one catch, though. Perry has to fire Clark. But they can't tell Lois and Jimmy. Now, we know from countless episodes of having watched this show that Jimmy can't be trusted. Jimmy will be the first one to open his mouth or get hit up with a truth drug or something. Jimmy will let the secret go. We know that. And I find it interesting that when Clark suggests Perry fire him, Perry is very concerned about how heartbroken Lois and Jimmy will be. So so they put their plan into motion and apparently Clark gets fired as Jimmy and Lois listen over the intercom. I believe there's... I believe they're sitting in Lois' office here. And I'm not sure I'm buying Noel Neal's acting here. She cries over Clark's firing. I don't know. Maybe she's not very good at crying on command. I don't know. However, Jimmy just stands there with the uh, dumb look on his face. Look Jack Larson would often call Jimmy's stupefied look. And what I really love is after we see the sadness and the crying of Lois Lane, it's very contrary to the conspiratory smiling handshake between Perry and Clark. They are both very pleased with themselves. We go right to the criminals, Foster and Curtis, reading about Clark getting fired from the planet. I'm not exactly sure why Clark getting fired from the planet is front page news. Maybe the criminal charge has something to do with it, but, you know, when I got laid off from one of the newspapers I worked from, it didn't make the paper. At least, not the paper I had worked for at the time. It made a, co- it made a competitor's paper, but not ours. Maybe that's part of the ruse, I don't know. Henderson thinks this plan is crazy, but he has admiration for Clark for, tr- for doing it, because Clark is really... Risking everything here. He's rolling the rolling the dice on whether or not he's going to survive a trial and not get sent to prison. Henderson shows his respect by helping Clark get his set his plan into motion. So at f- first, Foster and Curtis aren't sure what to make of Clark's attitude. So they're going to at least check it out. Personally, if I were these guys and I was thinking straight, I would probably want to stay clear of Clark. You know, you just frame the guy. Why would he want to work for you immediately? You would think he'd try to beat the frame-up job, but he's not. So, I really, if I were the criminal organization here, I would be staying far away from Mr. Clark Kent. But that's not what they're going to do, because if they do, we have no episode. So, they visit Clark at his place, they offer him a job, and he agrees. He uses uh, his super hearing to demonstrate his fine safe-cracking skills, and this is when we get our first indication that there is a boss beyond Curtis and Foster. Who is the boss? We'll find out. So next we get a call to Thomas Wingate. It's a call from Curtis telling him that his office was robbed. And as Wingate gets dressed and leaves, he gets knocked out. And here's where we meet Stoddard, who's played by 
Tristan Coffin, who we saw him last in season one. He was Davis, the former con who was being set up by Mr. Green in Case of the Talkative Dummy. And he had a small role in the Mystery of the Broken Statues later that season. He tells Wingate that he's in the hospital, and he says he's from the FBI and chasing jewel thieves. You know, you can immediately tell that there's something fishy about Stoddard. I don't know if it's because of the way he looks, the way he's acting, but... I don't know, maybe this room just looks too nice to be a hospital, I don't know, but... Maybe I've been watching these kind of shows for too long, and I'm starting to be able to see through some of the ruses. I don't know. So anyway, Wingate tells Stoddard that the diamonds are at his home, and... Clark and his new friends are kind of watching through a hole in the wall here. A one-way window in the hospital room. And Stoddard is pretending to be an FBI agent. And this is when he, Clark and Stoddard meet, and... Clark's job is going to be to get those diamonds from Wingate safe. And this is when Lois and Jimmy show up, uh complicating matters. But the one thing it does help is that Curtis doesn't have to go with Clark to fetch Wingate's diamonds. You know, this is one of the few times that Clark gets to go somewhere alone. We've seen it countless times in over the course of this series that obviously Clark wants to go someplace alone so we can change it to Superman and deal with the problem, but somebody always goes with him and prevents him from doing what he wants. Superman shows up at the South African diamond mine and he wants to borrow a ton of diamonds. 900 carats worth. Apparently, uh, the overseer, Mr. Bennett, doesn't have them right away as he just sent out a shipment. But he is happy to let Superman mine for them himself. Because, you know, Superman will bring them back. We can trust him that way. Superman goes in the mine, digs them up, sticks them in his belt, and here he goes. He gives Bennett a nice wave as he flies off. And this is probably the most exciting thing the minekeeper has seen in a long time. Stoddard now wants to clear out of Metropolis after this job as Clark comes back with the uncut diamonds. Stoddard still wants to go, but he mentions they have to kill Lois and Jimmy because they started in on a job. You know, and Clark plays along acting as though he hates them because they remind him of his old life. You know, obviously we know, judging by his actions, that Clark is not really a criminal and he's not going to really do anything to Lois and Jimmy. But, you know, I have to think at this point, Lois and Jimmy are starting to get worried and I think they're starting to think that Clark had actually turned against them. But Clark kind of gives himself away a little bit. When Stoddard asks if there are any objections, Clark speaks very fast in that tone as if he's scared. And then he changes his mind, calms down, and says, oh, no, I have no objections. So Clark marches them to the Daily Planet office as Stoddard checks on something, as Clark may have made a mistake. Only wonder what that mistake is. So in the Daily Planet, you know, another memorable scene that I remember from when I was a kid. Clark ties Lois and Jimmy back to back, and they throw some paper on a chair, and they, Clark cuts some of the interior stuffing out. This is a green chair that I've never noticed before, and Clark is going with this method so it looks like an accident, and the newspapers catch quickly. You know, I always say there's always one or two scenes from an episode that I seem to remember. In this episode, it was Clark setting up the fire with the green chair in Perry's office. And Curtis is impressed, but Stoddard is not, as Foster pulls a gun on Clark when they get back. And we're quickly shown why, as we see Perry in the hospital room basically spilling his guts to Stoddard. During that time, Stoddard got a call that Lois and Jimmy have survived. This is when Clark tells Perry about who the gang is and all that, and Clark and Perry are giving pills to make them drowsy. Obviously, Perry goes first, and then Clark fakes going to sleep. Once Perry is out and the criminals are gone, Clark changes to Superman. And I love how he grabs the getaway car before he can make a getaway. He grabs the car, lifts it up, puts it down, and makes a nice leap over the car, and he takes care of our criminal gang with a couple of nice judo chops. I mean, William Shatner... 11 years later in the original Star Trek series, would make fine use of the judo chop. After all this, Superman tells Henderson where to find the missing people. 
And I really like this ending scene, waking up Clark. And this is where apparently we learn that Perry has a habit of falling asleep while smoking cigars. So Clark bought him a fireproof chair. Even so, Clark played a dangerous gamble here. And, you know, Jimmy is still concerned that what if something went wrong, but... Clark just kind of brushes off. Well, then Superman would have had to show up on time as usual. And I'm sure Superman would have. But this is a very good episode. I really like this one. A lot of fun. You don't get to see Clark act like a criminal very often. I think we last saw it in Season 1 episode, The Secret of Superman. Acting in this episode was top-notch. You really bought the fear of Clark from Lois and Jimmy. You know, the crying maybe of Noel Neal when Clark got fired. Not so much, but overall this was a good effort. So overall, two good ones this week. Not like last week when Bob and I absolutely gushed over Great Caesar's ghost and then struggled to get through Test of a Warrior. So, next time, we're going to be doing some traveling. We're going to go halfway around the world to check out the Magic Necklace. And then we're going to take a trip out west to meet the Bully of Dry Gulch. If you would like to comment on anything I've you've heard in any of my episodes, please feel free to email me at manofscreen at gmail.com. You can join the conversation over in the Facebook group. You can just put Man of Screen Podcast into your search feed and the show will come up. I'm also on Twitter. You can find me at Man of Screencast. And if you're talking about the show on social medias, please use the hashtag Man of Screen Podcast. You can also leave me a review on iTunes and Stitcher. That'll help raise the show's profile in the search feeds. Until next time, everybody. Thanks for listening. Have a good one. Bye. Don't miss the next thrill-packed episode in the amazing Man of Screen podcast. The Man of Screen podcast is produced by Mike Zemo, and all opinions on the show are those of Mike Zemo and his guests and no one else. All music is in sound clips used in the making of the show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All trademarks are copyright their original copyright holders. The Man of Screen podcast is a member of the Superman Podcast Network, can be found at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. The homepage for the show is manofscreen.podomatic.com, and you can email the show at manofscreen at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.